Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And then a crisis of 2008 happened. And I was thinking, geez, at this point, people must have understood that they cannot trust the industrial or the financial sector, that they're not the motors of society. Maybe this is our chance as cultural institutions to prove that we are the real R&D of society, that we provide a form of progress that is like slow food. It's slow progress. It's more sustainable and more dependable, but it acts more slowly and across a longer period of time. everyone. I'm Amy. I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. Today on the show, we're talking to Paola Antonelli. She's the Senior Curator of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art, as well as the Founding Director of MoMA's Research and Development. She has a Master's in Architecture from the Polytechnic in Milan and Honorary Doctorates from the Royal College of Art, Kingston University, Art Center, and Pratt. You may have seen one of her many TED Talks. If not, look them up right now. Or wait, look them up after you listen to this. Or maybe you've even visited one of the groundbreaking exhibitions she's mounted at MoMA. There's one on view now called Items, Is Fashion Modern? Which explores the present, past, and future of 111 items of clothing and accessories that have had a strong impact on the world. She was named one of the 25 most incisive design visionaries by Time Magazine in 2007. More importantly, she's making significant headway in expanding our cultural understanding of what design is and what design can do. I would pay millions of dollars to get a ticket to the inside of her brain, but since we can't do that, we did our best to get her to give us a guided tour. But let's talk to Paula. I am Paola Antonelli. I live in New York City, where I work at the Museum of Modern Art. My official titles are Senior Curator of Architecture and Design and Director of R&D. That means that I organize exhibitions of contemporary design. I organize lively debates that are about the connection between the museums and citizens in real life. And I also act a little bit as a public figure for whenever citizens have questions about contemporary design or MoMA, I'm here to answer them. The passion for design is something that I discovered in life. It was not a mission since childhood. Like any other child, I wanted to be an astronaut and then a nuclear physicist and then a doctor. I mean, I went through all the motions. I never 
set out to become a curator of contemporary design. I actually studied architecture. I guess it, it's a little bit nature, but a lot of it is nurture because growing up in Milan, Italy, I breathed in design. Italy is uh, is a company country almost. It's about the arts and especially about design and Milan even more so. So I guess I landed where I was supposed to land without ever targeting or aiming at that particular landing pad. <laughs> Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about your childhood. I'd love to know a little bit more what it was like growing up in Milan. What was your family like and how was your childhood? I'm the daughter of two doctors. You know, my dad is a surgeon and my mother is an anatomopathologist. And, uh, for some reason, uh, they were both quite artistically inclined. My father also, you know, paid for his university by doing jazz piano and correcting proofs in newspapers. So they were not only scientists, but um, I would say that nobody really cared too much about design. And that's the secret of Italy and especially of Milan. Nobody has to pay too much mind to design because it's just normal. And I guess that's one of the strengths of Italian design. But growing up, I mean, I was born in Sardinia, then we moved to Ferrara, which is a small town near Bologna. But most of my life, I lived in Milan, and that's where my parents are from. Um, growing up there was great because I really milked the city for everything that it had to give me. I mean, as a teenager, I was working in fashion. I was working in a PR office in the afternoon after school. And then I moved into design. So design and fashion are truly the two main industries in Milan. So it was really great. It was also great to be able to leave Milan. I mean, as usual, you, you grow up in a place and then you leave and you appreciate it even more. But I, I think that Milan gave me a very international and global outlook, which is not something that you normally get in many places in Italy. Italy is a wonderful country. The cities are one more gorgeous than the other. But I would say that Milan is truly the one city where you can feel part of the world. Coming from doctors who were also creative and then this city that is the epicenter of design and creativity, it's just in the blood of Milan. You say you can take it for granted because it just seeps in. How did you start to understand and reconcile yourself with your own creativity? Working in fashion and advertising, what did you do and how did you express yourself through that? I didn't really consider myself creative. I was laborious and I was ingenious, but I never thought I was an artist or a particularly creative person. Mm. I really liked writing and I wrote pretty well. And when I was in school, like as a child, I used to draw comics on the desk during classes and sometimes get in trouble, but I never felt that I was an artist. And even when it comes to curating and to choosing design, you know, in Italy, you don't go to curating school or to to journalism school that much, you study something and then you decide where and how to apply what you've studied. So if you study architecture, very few become architects. I mean, it was this messy university where there would be dozens of thousands of people. I'm not kidding. And very few would become architects. So you study architecture, you can become an architect or you can you can teach architecture, you can write about architecture, you can curate architecture, and the same for all other disciplines, which makes for sometimes horrible prose. 
but really, <laughs> really good content. <laughs> so, so I never set out, you know, I went first to economics, then I switched to architecture because I didn't have the brains for economics. And then when I was in architecture, I uh, organically began working as a curator. You know, it started out when I was still in school and they were looking for people that would work as gophers to help set up an exhibition. So literally I was running around buying nails or, you know, helping to frame things, just anything that was needed. And mm -hmm. that was my first experience. And then organically I started writing and curating, you know, and that's because Milan gives you so many opportunities because I started working at Domus, which is a quite well-known architecture and design magazine. And at the same time, I was curating because, you know, here in New York, you, you have only few places that do design shows or architecture shows. And instead in Milan, you had many, many opportunities. It's much more normal. So was that when you were in architecture school? How old were you? I went age 17 to 19. I was in economics. And then from 19 on, I was in architecture school. I've heard you say that around 24, you discovered that you were much more comfortable with objects than with people and you decided to embrace this. <laughs> was that happening then? I don't know if it really happened at 24. It was later than that. It was a, a slow growth of this realization because, you know, I always tried to be funny and to be sociable and to be really like the life of the party. But it was so much work and I so much would rather stay home and watch TV, but it took a while to be able to confess this and to admit <laughs> to this you know everybody would like to be so fun and sociable and uh, nope <laughs> you gotta fess up to what you are it sounds like at an early age you had an experience helping with exhibitions could you connect the dots between studying architecture in Milan and ending up at MoMA I can tell you that I realize, looking in hindsight at my life, I realize how important it is to expose young people to possibilities and to their potential. Because in a way, you break the ice and you demystify experiences. So by, by having had the experience of working in an exhibition, I knew that one could be a curator. By being sent by my parents, as often happened at that time, every summer I would be sent to a different foreign city to learn a different language. So I was in Salamanca to learn Spanish. I was in Paris ever since I was 14, so really early on. By doing so, they exposed me to the idea of the foreign, right? So I never mm. was intimidated by being in a different country with different languages and different currency, you know. So even that, so I was lucky because of my parents' culture, but also because of their, they were not really rich, but of course they were, they were well-to-do, right? I was able to not fear all of these different possible experiences. So I realize now how important it is for people like me or like you to mentor younger people. I know that sometimes it's just about letting one know, hey, this is possible. So I'm connecting the dots because without any fear, I was once asked to work on the International Design Conference in Aspen when I was still in Milan. I said yes, and I was 24 at that time. 
And I worked on this. The chair of the conference was Paolo Vitti, who was this great head of cultural activities at Olivetti. Then he was the director of the Palazzo Grassi Museum in Venice. And he was co-chairing the conference with somebody instead based here in the States, Bill Lacey. And so I worked on this conference without really knowing what I was doing. I just like in stride, let's try and go to work in the United States. And then I got a crush on this guy that was from Los Angeles. So I followed the guy to Los Angeles and nothing happened with the guy, but I landed a teaching position at UCLA. So you see the pattern. It was about not being afraid. And this is something that I truly got from my parents and from my education. After that, you know, it's not being afraid. Second, having a lot of energy and working hard. And third, having luck. So let me be frank. I got my job at MoMA finding an ad in a magazine, ID magazine. Granted, I worked hard and then I was able to convince the curators to hire me, but that's how it went. Oh, I love that story. It's so wonderful to hear the personal side. It's fun to know that you followed a crush to Los Angeles and that's how you started teaching at UCLA. (laughs) Of course. And I love knowing that it was an ad in a magazine, you know, and then of course you had to prove yourself. So it's not like it was, it was total luck. And it also makes a lot of sense with your background and your parents kind of supporting this idea of many languages, many foreign lands, that you are able to traverse the globe and new ideas without fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you've done at MoMA is you're the founding director of the research and development department. And the mission statement on the website describes that as both crucible and catalyst for new ways of thinking and doing in museums. And so I'm wondering how your fearlessness enabled you to institute that department. And can you also help us understand what your mission is? Mm -hmm. By the way, fearlessness applies only to certain areas of my life. (laughs) I just want to make sure you understand. (laughs) I'm terrified by my own shadow. But, um, well, it's a certain stubbornness that has enabled me to always find a way to do almost everything that I wanted. I mean, you could say that it's almost like a defiance that sometimes can be, it's a double-edged sword, but it's been serving me quite well, even though I have been very conscious that I've often been a problem and um, and a pain in the neck and a thorn in the side of my superiors. But the Department of R&D was born of a chip on the shoulder, but of a different kind, not towards my superiors or anybody else, but towards the financial system. So having done two years of economics and having left economics because at that time there was no such thing as behavioral economics. It was still a pseudoscience. It was the attempt to reduce human behavior to equations and models and having statistical predictions. It didn't make any sense to me. It really seemed like it was this game of calling a particular movement a recession or or a crisis and then making it happen, willing it into existence. So I left irritated by it and even more irritated by the uh, awareness and the acknowledgement along my years of university that intellectual labor is considered less valuable and less important to society than the financial sector that I had left. I mean, in a way, because intellectual laborers, you know, cultural institution, people that work in culture don't have the metrics that can plug into the models that already exist, they're not able to prove that culture is 
incredibly important to society, even to the GDP. You know, it's not an abstract importance. It's a very practical importance, but we don't have the metrics, so we disappear. Right. Along the years, I had been trying to find ways, reading, is there a way to find metrics, blah, blah, blah. And then a crisis of 2008 happened. And I was thinking, geez, at this point, people must have understood that they cannot trust the industrial or the financial sector, that they're not the motors of society. Maybe this is our chance as cultural institutions to prove that we are the real R&D of society, that we provide a form of progress that is like slow food. It's slow progress. It's more sustainable and more dependable, but it acts more slowly and across a longer period of time. So I had this whole idea of trying to prove that museums can be the R&D of society. And um, I went to the director of MoMA and told him about it, and uh, he was very excited about it. But at that time, we were all taking pay cuts not to fire anyone because it was the financial crisis. So it was not a good time to start a new department. So we waited a few years and then we began. And at this time, the department does much more R than D, but the R is good. And it's mostly these salons that we organize every other month or sporadically. I mean, lately I haven't been doing that many because I'm working on a major show, but uh, they are salons that tackle very big topics. Like the last one that we did was about truth. The one before was about death. They are really not for the timid of heart, but they are good because we tackle these big topics and we present different perspectives. At least one of the perspectives is always either an artist or a curator. And then you have scientists, architects, Uh, We also had pop music composer. It doesn't really matter. You just like bring together all these different views. And also you prepare a serious reading list. So every single presenter presents for seven minutes. I make an introduction at the beginning, but the people that I invite when they respond RSVP, yes, they get a reading list. Not everybody has to read it, but it's very funny. The moment you give people homework and you show how much homework you have done, the game becomes so much more interesting. The stakes are higher. People have more fun. The conversation is more adult and you really get to a little bit of D after the R. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, 
has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, even his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Oh, fascinating. Are these salons available on... Yeah, they're all online. If you search MoMA R&D, they're all online. There are videos and the bibliographies there. And, you know, at this point, I think we've done 20 or 21. I can't remember, but we've done many. And um, 
and some are great. Some are, some are, oh, I would say they're all great. There are some that are my favorites, but they're all pretty good. Can you give us an example of one of your favorites, just out of curiosity? I remember that I really loved the one about the algorithm. Well, the one about death was great, but uh, uh, the one about the algorithm is from some time ago, so I don't remember anymore who was speaking at it. But I remember it was so great because it was much more advanced. You know, when you talk about algorithm, usually people are always like saying, do algorithms decide for us? You know, it's the usual trite refrains. And instead, in this time, we went way forward. We were talking about, are you familiar with the concept of human in the loop? No. So it's basically, it's a counter to AI. It's when humans are necessary in the loop to make the experience or the calculus better. For instance, the way Spotify's algorithm works, there's also human beings. And Mm -hmm. so the algorithm is not enough. So the one about the algorithm was... Adam Bly, who is a scientist and started a great science magazine and that did the algorithm for Spotify. And there was Claudia Perlich, who's a scientist, Hugo Liu, who's a style expert, and Heather Dewey-Hagberg, who is an artist. So that was a pretty good one. It was number 15. And now we have done 20, 20 salons. So the last one was Truth and the one before was modern death and the one about death was also pretty good oh and then there was one about fluidity that was excellent um fluidity of gender of course but also of race and it was called fluid states of america and i'm pretty proud of that oh these all sound fascinating i feel like i'm gonna go binge watch all of this some of them are really fun and i mean who has time these days but i gotta say if having time or taking bit by bit some are Pretty great snippets. So let's talk about something you're working on right now. I hear you're working on an exhibition called Items is Fashion Modern. Can you talk a little bit about that? Of course. It is an exhibition that talks about fashion as design. So it collects, it gathers not only pieces of high fashion, but also very humble garments or what I call humble masterpieces. So the viewpoint is that MoMA has not done anything about fashion since 1944. And that is a big gap because fashion is important. It's fundamental, especially from a design standpoint. So a few years ago, I started this list called Garments That Changed the World. And it was a list that I was keeping in my drawer. And I was thinking about the collection of the museum and about what garments should be added, because at that time, there was hardly any. There was a Mariano Fortuny dress. I had snuck in the white t-shirt. Then I had snuck in some sports hijabs and a parka. You know, there were a few far in between, but there was no not a commitment not to fashion, which would be out of our um, immediate realm, but at least to garments. Mm -hmm. So uh, some time ago, the director who knew about this list told me, why don't you do a fashion show? And I'm like, a fashion show? What do you mean? Because, you know, I'm not a fashion expert and I wouldn't improvise myself as such. He said, no, an exhibition that is based on your list of, of garments. And I'm like, oh, really? And I started thinking about it and uh, realized that it could be done even by somebody that is not immediately a fashion expert, but is rather a design expert. So the big difference between many of the fashion exhibitions that you see and an exhibition like Items is not only on the type of garments. I mean, that 
so many fashion shows like the one that is now at the Met are about very spectacular fashion. But it's also about the fact that many fashion shows are based on the personality of the designer or on a particular style. And instead, design shows tend to be about objects, at least the design shows that I privilege. So I was thinking if instead of considering them pieces by a particular designer, if I looked at the objects and used these objects as lenses to understand the complexity of the designed and built world. So not only aesthetics and, uh, and style, but also labor practices, material technology, sustainability. You know, so you use these items, these objects in a very intersectional way. Mm-hmm. Um, an exhibition can become a real door into a different universe. So I decided to make a list of the of 111, at least at first it was 99, then I went on to 111 because I needed more and I still wanted something divisible by three. So 111 items of clothing that had a strong influence on the Western world in the 20th and 21st century. And uh, just started making this list, you know, and if you look at the list, I bet you that you and I overlap at least on 80%, I would say, I'm quite sure. Uh, and the other 20% is what defines you and your particular experience as a person. So the beauty about this exhibition is that I'm hoping people will not only recognize themselves, but by recognizing themselves, they will learn more about design in an almost effortless way. So you mentioned the white t-shirt. Is mm-hmm. that on this list? I'm thinking also things like a sneaker and a pair yeah. of jeans. Which sneaker? Which sneaker? Oh, the Air Jordan? Mm-hmm. Chuck Almost. Taylor. No. The first ni- Nike? The first Nikes? <laughs> Not the first Nikes, no. Chuck Taylors are okay. Nike, we have mm-hmm. the Air Force One. I'm going to help you. What mm-hmm. else? Okay, thank you. <laughs> another one. An- another one. Oh, gosh. The Adidas superstar. Oh, oh yeah. Of course, right? Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, I, we can we can play this game. But the beautiful thing is that the moment I told you there's a list, you're making your own list. Yes. Right? And, and I want to know why so, divisible by three. Because I like it. Oh. <laughs> Superstition. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you know. <laughs> Just because. <laughs> I want to move on from the exhibition to, in general, your work in terms of planning exhibitions, but also acquisitions. You've made waves with some groundbreaking, even controversial acquisitions like like the at symbol, mm-hmm. uh, Pac-Man and Tetris, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, some exhibitions like Design and Violence, Design in the Elastic Mind. We always like to talk about the creative process. And so I would love to know what your creative process is like when you're developing criteria for exhibitions and acquisitions. Well, to be serious, not to be coy, it's so important to have people you can talk with, you know. So I have several, but some of the best ideas might happen in my mind, but it's only by getting them out of my mind and into discussion do they become better. So the ad sign completely happened in my mind. That's one of the few things, and I cannot remember how. It just grew organically, and it was very gradual. Like at the beginning, I looked at it, and I'm like, whoa, that's pretty gorgeous. I started digging into its history and found out so much. And in the end, bit by bit, it became 
so poignant and so amazingly significant as a design item that the acquisition is something that I'm still proud of because it has everything. It has timelessness. You know, the first time it was used was in the Middle Ages and it had the same meaning that it has today because it was about connecting. I mean, I can go on forever. There's still a blog post that tells you everything. But so that really happened in my mind. But when it comes instead to something like design and violence, the prompt for design and violence was the 3D printed gun. I remember that when it was released, I was really stunned. I was also stunned by my being stunned because on the one hand, I was amazed that something as positive as open source philosophy and 3D printing could be used to legitimize the ability of printing a lethal weapon at home. But then immediately afterwards, I was stunned by my being stunned because I thought it's very Pollyannish to think that there's not a dark side to everything that human beings do. So it got me thinking, this dilemma, it got me thinking about the nature of evil. I mean, I'm sorry. (laughs) I know that it's big, but it did. Mm -hmm get me thinking about this and about also you know libertarian philosophy which is so interesting because it is at the same time feared but also it has an honesty and a logic to itself that I wanted to explore and I started looking and thinking okay um how can I explore violence using design? And I started making a list of objects that have an ambiguous relationship with violence. At the same time there was a book by Steven Pinker that was released called The Better Angels of Our Nature that argues that society is becoming less violent. And now it's interesting because if you think about it, somebody tells you society is becoming less violent, you tell them, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? Sure enough, Pinker proved his assertions by having data and talking about a certain type of violence and it was impeccable. But I was thinking inside of myself, probably it's the idea of violence that has changed. So we cannot argue that society is becoming less violent. Maybe there's less bloodletting, but definitely there are different types of violence that we could argue have supplanted the old um, kind of muscular, bloody kind. So I started making this list and then I, as usual, reached out to a great colleague, in this case, Jamer Hunt. I always look for people that are much better than I am, at least in some parts of the game. And Jamer is brilliant. He has an amazing mind that knows how to clarify and connect links. And so immediately he took my messy list and he made it into quadrants and everything was organized. And this is the kind of violence we need to explore. And it was like speculative versus real, mass versus individual. And I was like, oh my God, it's done. So working together... No, no, it was, it, it was really great. So we put together a proposal for an exhibition. We proposed it to MoMA as an exhibition and it was not accepted as such. And I'm not surprised because frankly, it's not a very MoMA show, an exhibition with AK-47s. It was not really about art, even though maybe the exhibition in itself was a piece of art. So as we were talking about defiance and the fact that sometimes it's important to let go and sometimes not. So when we were told no, we thought that the idea was a little too good to be let go. And so we decided to do something that didn't require any permission or money. We started a WordPress site and we started it by calling in favors from some really good and authoritative writers. So every other week we would give one of these 
ambiguous items to a writer and asked the person to write a little essay. Usually the writer had some knowledge or expertise in the subject. Then at the end of the post, we would ask the public a question. And therefore, we used the website in a way that wouldn't have been possible in the exhibition. And that made it into an amazing project because... To give you an example, there was a post about the redesign of the slaughterhouse by Temple Grandin. Mm -hmm. And the essay was written by Ingrid Newkirk, who's the president of PETA. The question at the end was, can we redesign a violent act to be more humane? And we got more than 150 comments. So it really is fascinating. With this project that went on for a year and a half, we learned an incredible amount. Then, you know, at some point, MoMA decided to put it on its own website and then did a book. So we did a book with MoMA. And the funny thing is that at the end, it became an exhibition, but not at MoMA, at the Science Gallery in Dublin, because they were interested in the show. They hadn't realized that there was no show. And so I told them, why don't you do the show? And they did. <laughs> so, so it was nice. It was kind of post-digital. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So just to encapsulate, you started the WordPress site, you created a dialogue with all the people who are sort of the thought leaders and also eliciting comments from the public. And then around this whole topic, the show that you initially pitched came to being in an institution who was interested in showing it. So you kind of found a loophole out of that rejection. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that leads me to the idea of rejection, because you have said as a curator, you have to face a lot of rejection because sometimes these ideas are too controversial, too new, too unproved for people to feel comfortable with them. And so they tell you no. And yeah. you've also mentioned that you feel mentorship is important and we have to expose people to all the options that are available to them. So I want to give you the option to mentor our listeners. I want to know how yeah. you've learned to manage rejection, both personally and give us another example of a strategy for handling it professionally. I haven't managed to handle it. I get angry all the time. <laughs> oh, that's refreshing. No, I, <laughs> absolutely not. I usually don't let go. And uh, sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad, you know. So I am not in any position to teach anybody else what to do. I just want people to know that it's very human to get really, really angry. The best that you can do is to channel your anger so that it becomes creativity. And that I believe in. I believe that anger can be very helpful um, if it's used in a constructive and not a destructive way. So truly, that is a truth. Anything else about managing rejection? Hey, don't listen to me. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> well, it's true. I like to think of it. It's a buildup of energy, right? And you're responsible exactly. for where that energy is going to get directed. And that energy can exactly. either cor corrode you from the inside, go out and cause repercussions that are damaging out in the world or get channeled in a constructive way. Sometimes it's hard to see what constructive is when you're in the yeah, middle of well, that my rage. Yeah, well, my reaction is always to stick it to the man. But <laughs> the fact, like, really. So the best that you can do is to have people around you that help you stick it to the man in a constructive and strategic way, not at random. So I also count a lot, you know, my husband, for instance, he's very strategic, girlfriends, you know, it's, it's like really you, if you are furious, just wait a little while and talk to somebody that knows you that can help you maybe rehearse. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you have to role play. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
So another part of your job is public speaking and communicating the purpose and thought behind your work. And you mentioned earlier that being a curator and being interested in architecture and design was much more nurture than it was nature for you. And you like objects over people, but you share your experiences and you speak to a lot of people. Can you talk a little bit about how important public speaking is to your work and how you've developed those skills? I love public speaking and it's very important, but you know, when you have a big audience, it becomes very abstract, you know, so mm-hmm. you, you don't have that fear of the other human being <laughs> It becomes very, very abstract. But the way I learned, you know, I didn't learn in Italy. In Italy, you don't get taught. It's a very American or at least Anglo-Saxon culture, that of uh, public speaking. And in Italy, it's not encouraged, especially you're not supposed to make jokes. You're supposed to be dour and academic. So I really had to learn when I came here. And thankfully, it comes quite natural. I don't like to see myself and I don't like to listen to myself, but it seems that people enjoy it. So it seems to be working well. I think it's incredibly important because it's a way to proselytize and so many of the ideas that I have, I really would like to push in the open. I want people to take design more seriously. I want the hierarchy of the arts to get subverted. I don't believe that art should be on top and architecture and design should be at the bottom. And there are so many things that I want to speak about and I have the greatest pulpit because MoMA is so well known and so respected that I would be crazy not to use it. And thank God I enjoy using it. Yes. And you do enjoy it. That's that's something I really want to know because you kind of self-described as an introvert. Well, but as I told you before, public speaking is not about extroversion at all. Yeah, introversion and extroversion are about small batches of human beings that really prod into you and you're supposed to like stand in front and speak to, you know, like small batches. A big audience is really so much easier. It's funny. It's like it's performing. It's Mm. it's acting. And even when you have an exchange, it's really funny and you can have a personal interaction or direct to an individual, but it doesn't get intimate. Frankly, it's all about fear of intimacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the truth. I, I would like you to agree, disagree or rephrase as appropriate to help us understand how your your discomfort with people <laughs> still manifests as a deep love, respect and embrace of humanity and in many ways helps us understand humanity even better. And I fully agree. So long as I don't have to be intimate with other human beings, I love them dearly and I have great tenderness and great, I mean, I'm in awe of what people can accomplish coming every single day. So you really framed it perfectly. I would love to get a sense of how you feel like the institution of museum is going to be evolving in the future. Are we going to be seeing lots of substantial changes in the way that we view, interact with exhibitions or objects? I don't think so. I mean, at least in traditional museums, I think that museums will still be, I mean, the museums that already exist will still be destinations. They will still be physical. And then there will be new museums that might have more of a digital dimension to them. But no matter what, museums will always be places. Well, people people can also have digital places. So it doesn't have to be necessarily brick and mortar. But they are places that I like to say are for changing gears. So if you're in a small 
city in the provinces, you go to a museum to like switch to the higher gear. If you're in a place like New York, you might want to go to a museum to just like take a chill, you know, moment. So I believe that they are important to get people thinking. And as I was telling you before, I really believe they can be the R&D of society. They can help people deal with important and critical issues uh, that deal with violence, deal with racism, deal with happiness, deal with sustainability. There are places where you can go to have deeper thoughts and maybe also useful conversations that are prompted by objects, objects that can be of art, of design, of cinematography, of science, of performance. So that's what I think museums can be. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. This has been positively mind expanding. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. I I am so in love. <laughs> ah, she's amazing and she's so well spoken and everything she says is is very thoughtful and thought provoking. Thought provoking and her mind is one of those minds that is kind of moving the needle forward in society and I'm just so impressed with how human she is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I know that this whole podcast is about celebrating the humanity behind all these great ideas, but I still get overwhelmed and excited when we get to talk to such a thinker like that. Mm-hmm. Such an amazing thinker. And such a force in art and design. I mean, the things that she's creating and even not just at MoMA, but like she's said if mama says no she's like well i'm just gonna go do my thing over here and maybe somebody else will be interested in you know sharing it it's interesting too is is it it's not out of any sort of spider rebellion it's just like no this idea it's too Mm -hmm. fascinating you know we have to keep teasing it apart we have to keep getting other people's ideas in here and and we have to keep adding to this conversation and this dialogue because it helps us understand it better Mm -hmm. and there's all these ways we can do that and then she's also very cognizant that MoMA is a great pulpit for spreading these ideas but she's just very deft at, at knowing when and how to use the resources you know in a in a productive way absolutely and she's very passionate and incredibly determined yes oh my gosh can you imagine what dinner conversations are like at her house? <laughs> no. <laughs> but I feel like I want I want to peek at all her lists. I feel like she's a big list maker now, so I, I want to get my hands in that drawer of lists. You know, my dad keeps lists like that, too. He used to walk around with a list in his pocket of things he didn't know yet. He would learn about them and check them off. <laughs> I love that. I feel like we make to-do lists, and then we make, like, um, bucket lists. But we never make other kinds of lists, or at least I haven't. But maybe I should start keeping a list of just random stuff. I mean, that's a fascinating exercise she started. A list of garments that have changed culture. Is that what she said? Yeah, but I wonder if if applying that technique to your own industry or whatever it is that you're doing or want to be doing in your daily life would be like a positive addition. What if you even just kept a very personal list of A list of two-dimensional artworks that have made me cry. Yeah, I actually do. I lied. I have a list on my phone that's like like songs that would be in a movie about my life. (laughs) I love it! It's very short because it's only the most impactful songs for me in my life. I like to go back and look at it and think about what it would be like to watch something like that and how what emotionally charged moments in my life would appear on the big screen. Anyway... So yeah, those kinds of lists, I guess, you know, maybe some of us do keep them. 
I'm going to start. I think we should challenge our listeners to start making a list. Oh my God. Good idea. Good idea. Go ahead. Issue the challenge, Jamie. Okay. So Clever challenges all of our listeners to make a list, whether it's important or not important or related to your work doesn't really matter, but just some sort of list that you can keep, whether it's on your phone, on your desk or in a notebook and look back on it and it'll give you some sense of joy or some sense of inspiration. And then you don't have to share the list with us because we want you to feel really safe with that list, but at least tell us what it's about or tell us that you made the list. Yeah, we want to know. We want to know. Oh my God, I love Palo Alto. I so much. <laughs> I'm pinching myself, Jamie. This was this was a lucky day. I'm, I'm excited for us. I also to to do feel like inspired to go watch all of the salons and also go down a YouTube rabbit hole of Paola Antonelli. So I would suggest that all of our listeners go do that immediately or at least pull yes. over and do it first if you're in the car. <laughs> yes. And to make things easy, we'll post some links on our show notes so you can check some things out there. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Pala's work. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love hearing from you. And please leave us a review on iTunes or tell all your friends about us. We need your help to share the stories of these incredible people. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modal of your studio with music by L1011. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.